Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jarrett Stepman, a contributor to The Daily Signal. And I'm Fred Lucas, White House correspondent for The Daily Signal. This week, we're talking about presidential negotiations, specifically Ronald Reagan's negotiation at the end of the Cold War in light of the recent negotiation between the Trump administration and North Korea. So next, we're going to have on a special guest who came on with us right after the negotiation between President Donald Trump and North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un. So we're now joined by Steve Dace, who is the host of The Steve Dace Show on CRTV. Steve, thanks for joining us. It's an honor. I mean, obviously, this is um, it, it, it's aptly named the Heritage Foundation. I mean, this is a legacy <laughs> in our movement. And so cool fanboy movement moment for me, even though I'm 44 years old, to come in and do a show. I admit it was kind of cool for a kid from Iowa. So thank you. <laughs> I admit it was, it was very cool for me, too. Uh, just working here in this building uh, is definitely uh, something that uh, is very remarkable for me, thinking, you know, where I've come and being here. So and we do really thank you for, for joining thank us on, on the right side of history. And of course, you know, this uh, this past week, we've had a, I think you could say a historic moment uh, with President Donald Trump meeting with uh, North Korea's Kim Jong-un. This is, of course, a very big deal. These these leaders, the president of the United States has not met with the North Korean leader, the entire history of North Korea. Uh, and I think there are a lot of people there trying to draw some connection to past events, past negotiations. And I think that something that's brought up a lot is Ronald Reagan at Reykjavik and, and the end of the Cold War. And Steve, I, I think something that, that's asked about this is, are there similarities between these events? Is there a similarity between what Trump is doing now and what Reagan did then? Well, Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump, I think we should say this up front, are obviously two completely different men uh, in terms of temperament, their private lives, etc. But the the way that they were willing to not go along with the foreign policy establishment thinking in Washington, and I think it's important to call it foreign policy establishment because I, I do think there is a, a group of gatekeepers, and they're not always wrong. And sometimes, you know, we call them the deep state and things of that nature. I do think there's a group of people that are largely non-ideological, or they may have ideologies, but they set them aside for, you know, uh, partisanship ends at the shoreline sort of a sentiment mm-hmm. that are, are kind of a living organism in this town. And, and they view themselves as, we're here when people screw up and elect a Jimmy Carter. You know, we're, we're here to make sure the, thi- the thing doesn't fall apart when there's a neophyte or somebody that's in over their head, you know, calling the shots over there at the White House or the State Department or the Pentagon. And, and I think that they've, they've had this notion of, of what the world is and how it works and times they've been right. But often they've also, particularly post 9-11, they have been wrong. And I think what Reagan and Trump have in common was a willingness to say to that group think you know, we tried it your way for a long time and we didn't get the outcome that we wanted. If we try it another way, what do we lose? What, what, tell, me, tell me what we lose. I've, I've heard people say, well, this gives Kim Jong-un standing in the world. He already didn't have standing in the world. He was, people didn't know who he was. I mean, he can fire up a fake missile on July 4th weekend and Fox breaks in on live coverage of an Independence Day parade to put him on. The, I mean, he's, everybody know, and the world knows who he is who has a television set. You know, and so I think, I think there are certain talking points that, like Reagan, Trump is willing to push back on from a foreign policy standpoint. And for me, as someone that's a, that, that was a Trump skeptic that's n- known him for a long time, and I was one of the first people he came to when he wanted to run for president because of where I live in Iowa. 
And I told all my conservative friends, all my liberal media friends, this is not a joke. This guy is serious about running three, four years, two, three years before he finally announced and nobody believed it. And now, of course, he's the president of the United States. But the one thing I can say as a Trump skeptic that I do enjoy, I really don't care about the whole owning the libs thing. It's kind of fun, but it wears itself out after a while. I like the fact he's pushing back on foreign policy, sacred cows. Because when I look at what a lot of our post 9-11 foreign policy has been, I, I don't see a lot of victories. I, I see that we've drawn up a lot of animus in the world. I mean, people want to tell me it's no big deal that we moved the embassy in Jerusalem. Well, then why the heck did we do it for 20 years if it's no big deal? And I think that's part of this groupthink organism in the foreign. Well, we just can't do that. The Arab street will be upset. Yemen didn't even protest, guys. When they don't protest in Yemen, all right, then there's, there's, there's not much of a pushback there. And I think that's germane to this conversation because even though this is a different theater— there's been this notion that that the North Korean leader essentially rattles our cage, um, you know, says a couple of uh, sends up a smoke signal, says a couple of key phrases in the media, and presidents from Bill Clinton to George W. Bush to Barack Obama, we come hither, we cut them the once in a decade check, and then they pretend to denuclearize until they fire up more fake missiles over a July Fourth weekend. Have you guys done this movie before? You see how it ends. And I do like the fact that Trump is willing to go, you know, I don't know that we have, why do we play that again? Let's try something new. And you know what? Maybe the guy is a fraud. Maybe this isn't for real. But there's only one way to find out, and that's to call his bluff. And in this way, I think it is reminiscent of Reagan at Reykjavik. Now, the difference is Trump was willing to pull the plug on this summit before it got started a few weeks ago, right? Mm -hmm. Reagan walked right into a room with Mikhail Gorbachev, looked him in the eye, When the summit was on and the media, you know, there wasn't a daily signal in 1986, guys. (laughs) There wasn't a Fox News. There wasn't a CRTV. There wasn't even a Rush Limbaugh yet. All right. So the, the media industrial complex was the only avenue to reach the average American. And Reagan had been destroyed by the media early in his presidency for failing to meet with the Soviet leaders, Brezhnev and Dropov. He made the joke, well, they keep dying on me, right? Uh, calling them the evil empire at the National Religious Broadcasters uh, when he made that speech. And everybody was like, you can't do that. You're going you're gonna to start a nuclear war, right? Uh, and, and so he waited until the right moment. Gorbachev actually was the one who showed his hand early in that he's the one that instituted perestroika. And I know we have this notion of Gorbachev now as this um, uh, really nice communist, uh, reform-minded Marxist. And there's some truth to that. The guy also did not get to the top of the Politburo by sending cookie bouquets. All right? I mean, he was cunning. He was ruthless. But when he got to the top of the heap at the Politburo, and it was his turn to take over, as a new generation, he recognized The economic model we are operating underneath, if the West is really serious, because now I've got a united European front with Helmut Kohl and Margaret Thatcher backing up Ronald Reagan against me. I've got the Pope over here from a communist country who is using the the moral authority of his office to, to attack me on a moral and spiritual level. And now I have to go up against the resurgent American economy. And how many more years can we roll out here with paper mache tanks for May Day parades to fool the liberal media in the West? We can't do this much longer. And so Gorbachev really showed his hand first by going to the perestroika card. And I think that's what showed Reagan, I've got, we've got the leverage here. I've got the leverage in this relationship. And so when he shows up at Reykjavik and the pressure is really all on Reagan, we have to get a deal. We've got to get a deal. It's the first time American president is not at a major arms deal with the Soviet Union for him to get up 
when Gorbachev starts to throw his weight around and Gorbachev thinks, you know what, I've got your media on my side. You need me more than I need you. And for Reagan to get up and walk out of that meeting, now that's a boss move. Yeah. Right, and he took a lot of heat for yes, that. Yes, he did. I mean, I mean, everybody was, was kind of coming out against him at the time, yes. saying that he had failed, that yes. it was done. Yes, uh, that the right. Reagan they, was over. I mean, he was yeah. looking at people, po- people, potential impeachment right. down the line. Right. Uh, right. Uh, they, so people said that made nuclear war more likely. Yes, yeah, the absolutely. Left, left called him Reagan. Yep. Yeah, because Star Wars, SDI, Gorbachev, that was his big uh, – and and of course it was funny too because on one hand the liberal media back then always poo-pooed Star Wars. I remember watching this, the newscast as a kid, Mm -hmm. and this is never a joke. It's never going to happen, and yet that was the notion because the the notion that that a a nuclear exchange might not be a mutually assured destructive event Mm -hmm. is what gave Gorbachev cause for pause along with his own economic model at home was collapsing. And now we t- we learned shortly after that and after the arms deal of 88 and Reagan went and visited uh, Moscow and Gorbachev came here I think we were all shocked I know I was I mean I was a senior in high school <laughs> when we got when I came up when we got up one day and the Soviet Union was literally just collapsing I think we knew that they weren't going to last like another 10 or 20 years but I think what what we learned is the reason Gorbachev initiated perestroika is he was more aware of where they were at existentially than we were in the West, obviously, and he and and they were on a they were they had they were basically on six months to live, and Reagan sensed he had an advantage, ended up having more an advantage than he probably thought, put the boot to the throat, and you saw him exercise that leverage, and now, I mean, he is the president that is considered with ending the Cold War. What does that have to do with Trump here? Well, I like the fact he was willing to pull the plug, on. Uh, on on the summit before it took place. Now, what we saw last night, if we're going to be brutally honest, is a glorified photo op for both sides. But I think we also have to keep in mind that Don. You know, I started this off, guys, saying Trump is a different person than Ronald Reagan. Donald Trump is your is a consummate salesman, and if you like what he's selling you, then you think this guy is. Uh, This guy can really sell you on an idea. And if you don't like what he's selling you, you think he's the guy bothering you with a timeshare. So it really just comes down to (laughs) what you, whether you like what he's selling you, but he is all he's, it's kind of funny that Alex, uh, that Alec Baldwin hates Trump because what's his famous line from the movies, ABC always be closing from Glengarry Glenn Ross. That's really Trump's natural habitat. Everything, everything's the worst ever, the greatest ever. He is the consummate salesman. There have been times we've looked at it and thought, what is going on here? And then when we get through the the broken road and the zigzags, you know, and then, you know, they end up moving the embassy to Jerusalem on May 14th. And he keeps a promise that no one thought he was going to be able to keep. And then there are times when he says we're going to get rid of cross-dressers in the military. And the Pentagon down the street here is like, well, belay that order. We're just going to kind of do our own thing. And we're still kind of waiting for Trump to lean on them and say, no, you're going to follow through with what I ordered you to do. And I bring up both of those instances because my encouragement to your audience would be, There's so many people in our industry right now that are making a living with knee-jerk reactions, Mm -hmm. apologizing for everything Trump says and does or criticizing everything he says and does. And, you know, some of that goes with partisan politics. And and I think on a domestic level, we can have a much higher level of tolerance for these sorts of shenanigans. But I think when we're dealing with something with with a peninsula of 77 million people that have been suffering greatly for decades... I think we just need to be mature and sit back. And, you know, he has delivered on some things, as you said, Jarrett. Let's sit back and see what the end result of this is. Because I could find things about this last night that I don't like. For example, one of the criticisms I've seen is, well, he agreed to end joint uh, military operations with South Korea. 
But I think this should be noted as well. South Korea and North Korea have already formally ended the war, right? Kim Jong-un and the leader of South Korea have already met in person. They've already laid down their arms. So even there, that seems like we gave away too much. But, you know, Kim Jong-un already ended hostilities formally with the South before he received that action from us. Now, I don't like shaking hands with a guy who is, you know, at times a a bloodthirsty tyrant and demonic. But if there is a chance that um, we could see a paradigm shift here, and one thing Trump has sought out have been paradigm shifts, I think we give him a chance to see it through. I wonder wonder, if we talked about parallels of uh, President Reagan and President Trump. Uh, on that same note, uh, are there parallels with, uh, and a lot of people might laugh at this more, uh, parallels of Gorbachev and Kim Jong-un in the sense that what you said about Gorbachev knew his country was falling yep. apart. Yep. Is this the same dynamic with Kim Jong-un? He is a young leader. He sees the country is falling apart, and he might want to be seen as a reformer. I think, Fred, that's the big question here. See, I think Trump already disrupted the paradigm by having the summit. He's his end of the equation. He's already followed through on. Right. And I, I have a hard time believing after he ripped up the Iran deal to shreds hmm. that he's going to put his name on this proclamation. And then if we find out that he got pushed around uh, by or, or North Korea is is essentially uh, running a different higher level scam on him than they have on previous American presidents. I have a hard time believing the guy that will that will go to the wall destroying Justin Trudeau for his fake eyebrows is just going to look the other way and say to North Korea, oh, I guess you guys got me. I guess we'll just keep paying you. I, I'm not worried about him and, and John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. I'm not worried about them following through like you might be worried about a John Kerry following through because there's and it's not a partisan thing. It's a worldview thing. John Kerry comes from a progressive worldview, this notion of moral equivalency between cultures and things of that nature. Um, and, and I think that there, there's an element of progressivism that is every, every bit, if not more, fundamentalist than me as a Bible-believing Christian. I, it, these people are heavily dogmatic. And that's why you'll see John Kerry, even after he's out of office, go to the wall to justify the Iran deal with evidence to the contrary. Because for the progressive, their worldview has to be true, guys. Because if it's not true, well, I don't want to have to accept the alternative, right? With Trump, this is where you're dealing with a highly utilitarian, highly pragmatic individual, not dogmatic really at all, except for, you know, uh, what I, I think he will will boost his persona and ego. And so if, if if for a second, if we find out North Korea played this thing, I have no doubt, I'd be more concerned about him overreacting to it, frankly, than not <laughs> reacting to it. I think from this point forward, Fred, you're right. This is really about who's Kim Jong-un. Is Kim Jong-un a Gorbachev light? Meaning, just like Gorbachev had to be cunning and ruthless to get to the top of the heap at the Politburo, mm-hmm. so were you going to have to do so in the Un family? And we know what he's done to some of his own siblings, right? right? But in the end, is he a guy that's thinking, you know, do I want to preside over a parking lot for the next 30 years? Or when I look and I see the leader in China, Essentially, he's Chancellor Palpatine voting, getting voted emergency powers, right? Hey, we China just voted, guys. We're getting rid of term limits. How convenient. All right. Now, if you went anywhere except for a Christian church, which you won't find above ground in China, but if you went anywhere else in China except looking for a Christian church, you would see all forms of modernity. You'd see it wouldn't look up and down the street, wouldn't look much different than walking around here. 
uh, you know, around downtown D.C. here, the Capitol Complex at the Heritage Foundation. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if he's looking at that and saying, why can't I get me a piece of that? Why can't we have, you know, why can't I just rule here with my harem for the next 30, 40 years? And, and but we can have McDonald's and Burger King and Netflix. Why, you know, I, why, why do I have to make a choice either or? China has proven that if you give people a smartphone and access to certain to a certain extent of modernity, they'll put up with all kinds of forms of more subtle but just as tyrannical tyranny. I could see a Kim Jong Un who's not invested in the old generational paradigm, but is looking at the at China's kind of found this half tyranny measure, looking over at China and saying, you know, I'd kind of like to have me a piece of that. I could see that. Uh, and uh, one more, just to follow up on that, and and that is uh, af- after uh, the the major deal after the end of the Cold War, the the media loved Gorbachev uh, during that time. Uh, Rush Limbaugh used to make the joke about the Gorbasms. Gorbasms. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 of course, Gorbachev won a Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, Reagan didn't. Um, I mean, it, do, do you think we might see the same dynamic here? Kim Jong-un would win a Nobel Peace Prize or at least share it with Moon Jae-in and that might leave Trump out? Because um, there's been so much talk about a Nobel Peace Prize. I think I think the likelihood of Trump winning one or the likelihood of, of despite all the sit-ups I did this morning, me getting <laughs> spontaneous six-pack abs, okay? But if this turns out as the way we hope it does, um, there's a level of hatred that's visceral with Trump beyond what I even remember with Reagan. Mm-hmm. With, with Reagan, it was this notion that he was ideologically pulling their pants down all of the time. But you could not help but like him. With Trump, it's almost the inverse. Ideologically, <laughs> you're not sure what he might do on a daily basis. But on a personal level, he just embarrasses these people. And, and I could see – I could even see the Nobel people saying, you cut a deal with Trump. We're not even going to give Kim Jong-un. A Nobel Peace (laughs) Prize. I I could see them acting like I could see them acting like it just it just never happened. They think less of Kim Jong Un because he deals with Trump. Yeah, Kim Jong Un was cool when his when his sister was was trolling Mike Pence at the Olympics, right? right? Because because for these people, with and and for Trump too, it's personal. Now that actually works for us sometimes as conservatives. Mm -hmm. It works for us to hit the the ruthlessness. By which, and I've used that word a lot in this podcast, but the, the, the ruthlessness he uses to push back against their narratives works for us more times than it does not. But it doesn't work for us all the time. And I think one of the, one of the tests for us as conservatives is we're going to need to be able to, to, to say no. You know, we said no to the White House when they were getting squishy on the Paris Climate Accords. I think we need to learn lessons from moments like that. We said no with their first kind of fake religious liberty order, which was essentially a blog with a presidential seal. And then they did another one that was like really good. They're very sensitive up there at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Trump is very sensitive to criticism from the right. And I think we can use that to our advantage. So like, you know, right now as we're talking about this, they're down there at the Capitol meeting in secret, trying to figure out how they're going to screw us with amnesty by the end of the year. So because the reason they want to do amnesty is they want to pay off their K Street sugar daddies before the Democrats, in case the Democrats take the House and they get to put their name on it instead. Mm -hmm. We can push back on that with Trump. I I think that's where one thing you learn about Donald Trump is because he's the consummate businessman. If you give away your leverage to him, you'll get nothing in return. The longer we hold out, I think the better deal we get with him. And I think I think that we can use the way he treated North Korea. I, I think we can use that to our advantage at the exact same time and when it comes to domestic politics. 
So uh, one last thing, and, and you know, we've talked a, talked a lot about the negotiations between these two countries. You know, the, the changing of the diplomacy paradigm. But one thing I think that does need to be talked about is the, the human rights abuses that are going on mm-hmm. in North Korea. That is of a level. I mean, it's just absolutely inhuman what has gone on there. I mean, there's something like eighty to a hundred thousand political prisoners. I mean, Ronald Reagan certainly during his presidency, made this an issue that we yep. don't forget about the people who are jailed, who are, are sitting in a gulag somewhere. North Korea has a system of gulags that in some ways matches that of the heinousness of the Soviet Union. Of course, there are many critics, and I, I think that a lot of people who were behind the Iron Curtain, hearing the words of Reagan criticizing the regime, offer them hope. Now, North Korea is such a closed society. I mean, they, they get very little information there. But what does this mean for the people of North Korea, that there's some some, some crack, some some moment of hope. I mean, is, does this give them hope at, at any point, or is this, you know, something where we're going to look at long-term darkness for them? I think this, the answer to this question, Jarrett, I think will come down more towards uh, how we on the right respond to this. That I think if 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 there is a legitimate criticism of what we saw transpire yesterday, that's not knee-jerk, let me get my clickbait out, let me get my hot take out, which I'll disavow a month from now when it's not true, and then everybody will share that life comes at you fast, bro, meme on me, but I'll forget that it doesn't happen, right? That's like every day now, okay? But the, if there's one thing that I, I think we need to be diligent about as conservatives, it is pushing awareness of this plight, of the human... Uh, of the human toll plight here to a White House that you do have a president who is highly pragmatic, highly utilitarian. At times, he's also said things like with Otto Warmbler's family at the last State of the Union address, where he's he's been willing to raise the profile on things when he's alerted to them. And I think, you know, one of the best things, a, a, a great coach recognizes the strengths of his players and puts them in positions to succeed. We are looking at Trump as the coach. He is not the coach. He is the point guard of the team. We are the coach. We're the ones on the sidelines. Now, he's on the floor, right? He's running the offense, okay? But we're the ones that decide whether he's running the point, whether he comes out of the game, whether we trade him away, whether we get another point guard or not. You see where I'm going with this? And I think when your point guard has a certain strength and runs out into the game and the game gets away from him because that's not the facet of his game that is needed on the floor right now, a good coach calls a timeout and says, hey, let me tell you what I'm seeing. You need to see a broader view. You're kind of in your tunnel vision right now, right? Right. Um, you need to share the ball a little bit more, or maybe you need to be a little bit more selfish. With Trump right now, it's about we've got this guy. We've got this guy on the hook right now. We can close this sale. Always be closing, right? We can close a deal for denuclearization right now. But if we close a deal for denuclearization and it doesn't include major human rights concessions, it's the Iran deal all over again, hopefully, though, and expectedly with better oversight from Mike Pompeo than you would have gotten from John Kerry. But it's it's the same deal, right? right. It's really the same deal, just with different people overseeing it. And, and I think that's where we, as conservatives, pro-lifers, and this is a great opportunity to show we don't just care about people after or before they're born. This is where we need to say, no, Mr. President, this is now where you get the, he's already normalized relations. He's already talked about denuclearization. He's already given several concessions already. This is now where you go in and say, you know, I kind of want the undercoating too. You know, I kind of want that carpet allowance. You know, I, I want these major human rights concessions at the exact same time. And I, But my fear is because of the temperament and the makeup of the president you have, 
that if, if we as conservatives, if, if we're so hell-bent on, we have to defend him, we have to defend him, we have to defend him, no matter, mm-hmm. what, no matter what, that this is actually where we need to kind of come now and reason together. We need to be the coach of the team and say, hey, you go back in the game and run the offense I want you to run, and when the refs are screwing us, man, I'll get no one will scream at him louder than me. But I need you to not worry about the refs, not worry about Jim Acosta shouting questions like a tool. I need I need you to run the offense we want you to run. And right now, the world needs to see that the way they're running their country, if they want welcomed into the family of nations, the price isn't not is, is higher than you just don't threaten the rest of the world's people with weapons of mass destruction, but you stop threatening your own. And I think that's where we as conservatives and organizations like the Heritage Foundation can play a big role in using the, the influence you have in the White House and, the, and the, the place at the table you have to say point of order. And I think now's the time to have this conversation rather than waiting at the end. And then if you don't get the concessions you want and then you feel like you're sort of in the defensive of do I defend this deal or do I not? We're at the point of the wedding where the pastor says, speak now or forever hold your peace kind of thing. Well, that's that's uh, that's very well said, Steve, and uh, thank you so much again for for coming on the show with us. I think this was great, and I think this was very uh, enlightening to our to our audience. Thank you very much. You bet. Thanks it's an much. honor. You guys do great work, and if I can ever do anything to assist you, don't hesitate to ask. Thank you very much. Thanks. I take care. God bless. Thanks to everyone for joining us on the Right Side of History. If you'd like to listen to past and future broadcasts, you can also check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the Daily Signal website. Also take a look at the Daily Signal's Facebook page for when we air our next program. And if you're further interested in our work, check out my Twitter, at Jared Stepman, and Fred's Twitter, at Fred Lucas WH. Thanks again for listening to The Right Side of History. You've been listening to The Right Side of History, executive produced by Jared Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. Hi, this is Rob Bluey, Vice President of Publishing and Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Signal. If you liked hearing about the issues that Washington's not discussing, check out Underreported, a brand new video series from The Daily Signal looking at other issues that the mainstream media forgot to mention.